Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the privilege of interviewing the distinguished Tarul Deluce, Tug for short, and two gnomes for all you on Instagram. For the last 12 years of his life, he has ventured on an epic journey into the world of fungi. As a talented autodidact, his knowledge expanded quickly as his personal research took him from exploring an early curiosity in psychedelic mushrooms to becoming a veritable expert in identification of all manner of wild fungi. He has earned a deep respect in the world of mycology and is a moderator on pretty much every major Facebook group out there. Exploring what I would consider to be the frontiers of mushroom foraging and identification, he has even traveled into the wilds of North and South America with world-famous mycologists. And after having a chance to get to know him just a little bit, I have a feeling that this gnome's journey is far from over. Coming to us from Eastern Pennsylvania, the mushroom capital of the United States, to rule, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, you've been someone that I've followed um, through many Instagram accounts. I've always, you were one of the first people actually that I saw on Instagram that really inspired me to get out and start foraging. Um, you had that blend of like humor, a lot of knowledge, plus you were finding really cool edible mushrooms uh, and just made it really approachable. And I, I know you've got a lot of knowledge locked up in your brain, but there's something about <laughs> making it approachable that makes even someone who's new to it not feel intimidated and get involved. So I've always appreciated that. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. It's something that I kind of pride myself with um, is that trying to make it communicatable for um, beginners because it's really hard to relate often because um, you're, you're just kind of spitting scientific names at them. And um, it goes through one ear and out the other often. And when I talk to plant people, that's when I first realized it. They start <laughs> spitting at me uh, scientific names, and I get that cold, glazed look in my eyes. And I'm like, oh, so that's that's the look I see at other people as soon as I say a scientific name. So the thing it, about it is, you know, try to keep um, I try to keep the descriptions of them as simple as possible, but still distinguished amongst the other mushrooms, so we can kind of get to the root of what's different between the different species. Right, right. And I think that, you know, for me, that's always been one of my goals, too, is to make it approachable to people who know nothing about mushrooms to get involved. And uh, I was inspired to do that probably in, some, in no small part by yourself. Um, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. The, I, I also try to put, um, you know, the rare stuff that I see, the, the kind of obscure identifications that I find. <laughs> Because, you know, every place in the world is pretty diverse and, um, you know, with, there's a lot of undescribed species out there. And I know that I come across undescribed species all the time. And it's it's interesting and fun to um, try to figure, figure now that's, stuff out. Now, that is yeah. a super interesting world of undiscovered mushrooms or undiscovered fungi because, you know, I... I tell people that, um, and when I'm part of forage groups, we all acknowledge that, that, hey, keep a lookout, not just for those edible mushrooms that you want, but keep a lookout for everything because you never know what mushroom, you know, shouldn't be growing in this area or what mushroom may not have been identified. Uh, so it sounds like from your experience that, you know, that that isn't too far-fetched. You know, people can actually go out in the woods foraging and find mushrooms that haven't been found here before or just haven't been identified. Yeah, absolutely. It's really fun. My um, 
my my some of my friends are just really to foraging the good edibles and sometimes i slow them down because i'm uh looking at the weird stuff taking pictures but they go ahead and, and pick the good stuff while i'm uh out in the back picking crusts off of logs you know <laughs> and i think that's that is a big differentiator uh in the mushroom foraging community you know there's people that are into all kinds of mushrooms and then there's your edible or gourmet foragers um i think for myself just because of my current level of experience i kind of fall into that edible gourmet forager category i want to go out i want to feel the dopamine hit of finding something i can eat you know that's kind of like my big incentive for doing it but i know there are a lot of people who go out and really are keeping their eyes peeled for any mushroom that they find and i right. think now, don't get me wrong. I love foraging. I pick lots of edible mushrooms, and I like to um, diversify how many edible mushrooms we actually eat. I mean, there is so many yeah. out there that are so delicious, but people are scared to eat them. Um, there's there's a lot more approachable mushrooms that we can eat, and we're we're not we shouldn't be so scared of them. You know, like even plants. When you taste a plant, you can actually. Uh, um, get some poison by tasting it. When with mushrooms, you can actually taste toxic mushrooms and spit them out, which is really wild. To um, when I first heard it, I, I just didn't want to believe it because it just sounds so ridiculous. But um, it's true that the toxins have to be digested in mushrooms, and it's just not the case with plants. So that sort wow. of fear, that sort of fear around the mushrooms is is prevalent in most cultures around the world, uh, especially like. Uh, Anglo-centric countries. Um, I think our country is mostly Anglo-centric, um, right? So there's a lot of fear all around the world for mushrooms, and it's really funny when you see how other cultures um, deal with mushrooms. They'll they'll deal with amanitas often, and you know Americans. That's the first one that they tell you not to because it contains species that are deadly, but there's other species that aren't. So it's really fun to. Um, to see actually like where's the mythology and the truth and logic uh, line up here, you know, cause we have scientific means of determining if they're toxic or not, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's one of those things that because it's such a new field, you know, there's just an explosion of interest probably in the last like five to 10 years where so many more people are getting into it, but it's the kind of thing that still isn't perfectly defined. Like when you think yeah. about so many things in the world right now, you can look it up on the internet, get definitive answers, mushroom foraging, identification, edibility are one of those frontiers where you can look it up on the internet and get two wildly different answers, um, which is another thing that I think makes it really interesting and intriguing. It's like one of those things in our world that isn't totally locked in and set and there's not already a model. It's like there's room for discovery and there's room. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's hundreds and thousands of edible mushrooms out there. I've definitely eaten maybe... 200 species before you know i've been doing this for 12 years so like maybe three or four years ago you know i was assuming i was eating hundreds and species by then you know right and i i i counted it out and there's a you know 200 species is a lot <laughs> so i'm probably lot. close to 200 species or more of eating i mean um and if you put it in perspective aren't there only like 400 and something um birds out there and you know we can easily identify thousands of mushrooms, right? So, so well, um, when I think about the mushrooms that I eat, you know, I'm probably limited to like, when you're not talking about like commercially grown, but like seven or eight species. Everything in the wild. Mushrooms. Yeah. Everything in the wild. 
Right. Um, Still, we we kind of jumped right into it, and that's perfect. Um, But I am curious, you know, how you developed into this foraging expert and mushroom identification expert, whether this was something kind of in your family or really how you got into this world that we could jump back into it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, um, it was never really family thing, but, um, maybe it was, I mean, I was adopted. So it makes it really funny with that because, you know, um, yeah, so I was adopted from Turkey and there's probably a bunch of Turkish, um, mushroom hunters in my family, you know, and, um, but that's, you know, but, you know, nobody in, nobody in the United States I knew was hunting mushrooms, but I grew up right next to Kennett Square where they grow all the mushrooms or a lot of the world's mushrooms. Um, mostly the, uh, agaricus bisporus, the, the button mushroom, which is also the portobello, which is also the cremini. It's kind of the same mushroom, but, um, advertised differently, but, um, you know, and you know, they grow interesting stuff like maitake, piopino, a beach, whatever. Um, most of the stuff you see at the grocery store, but right. if you're lucky, you can find, you know, porcini and chanterelles and truffles, and those are all have to be hunted in the wild, you know? And that's where I really like getting mushrooms because a lot of these mushrooms can't be found in the store, not because you can't, you know, you really can't grow them. You know, you have to have a forest because uh, they have the relationships with the trees, you know, and no one's having a a farm, a tree farm, you know, just to grow mushrooms. So it's, it's definitely just go out in the wild and pick them. And um, so growing up in that area, though, with so much <laughs> mushroom influence, I'm sure it had some effect. Yeah, we have, we have a annual mushroom festival in Kennett Square, but it's really centered around the cultivated stuff. And they don't really want, okay, so Kenneth kind of came up with the, with the thing, um, wild mushrooms can kill you, right? And uh, that's kind that of an like very thing. pervasive in, in our lives since, you know, and it's a really interesting campaign to um, get us scared enough just to buy their mushrooms, right? But it's interesting. They do, they, they do, they do grow a, a good number of mushrooms, probably like 20 species, maybe 15 species, 10 species, I don't know. But um, but do you find they, a difference between people that are kind of in that commercial mushroom industry and then people like you, people like myself, people like a lot of the big Instagram these, mushroom these people? Businesses, these businesses have been around for maybe 100 years. I'm not quite sure how long exactly. But, um, you know, they're family-run businesses. So a business is a business. Um, right. They're probably not really interested in wild stuff. Um, they do an import stuff. I mean, they definitely import. Uh, truffles, uh, chanterelles, a porcini, which is interesting and, and great and all. But, you know, when, when you find out that you have 10 species of porcini in your backyard, it makes it much more interesting than the, than the three that they're selling, you know, commercially. <laughs> well, and that's so. what, what you just said kind of indicates, I think, your level of knowledge when it comes to mushroom identification. You know, I think most people, including myself, when you think of porcini, you have one image of mind and you're like, there's 10 different species of porcini. I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't know how to identify that. So I guess, you know, maybe around the world, what's on the market, who knows how many species, honestly, because I mean, we get porcini from China, we get porcini from South Africa, we get porcini from all over the world and they're all wild species and they're all different species, you know, and that's what makes it even more interesting. Some guy, I don't remember, you can look it up online. I can't, I really wish I had the thing off the top of my head or, 
But right. um, they did DNA on some imported Chinese porcini, and they found three new species of porcini because it's just not described. You know, just like like we're saying, many species are undescribed out there. Now, when so, did you, uh, you said you've been doing this for 12 years. Obviously, it sounds like you're largely kind of self-taught doing your own research. Right. I just kind of evaded the, your first question. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So honestly, I um, was interested in the psychedelic mushrooms because um, I had the curiosity at a young age um, with with that sort of thing, that sort of... Um, Changing your consciousness is a powerful, you know, something that can literally change your experience of consciousness is a powerful incentive. And after talking to a lot of people, I know that's where the interest gets sparked in. Right. It's hard. It's hard to admit it just because of like the cultural thing. I mean, just being known as a mushroom guy, people ask, you know, oh, is that going to get you high? And you got to laugh and everything else. But it's like it's it's kind of it, it is very biased because you don't ask a farmer you know, oh, I'm a farmer. Ha ha ha. Oh, do you grow a bunch of illegal plants? No. So get out of here. I grow corn, you know? So it's like, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, um, yeah. But maybe, maybe I, maybe got, I got interested in farming because I heard about other things. I don't know. Well, it's one of the most potent mushrooms that we can eat. There is a lot of lore, a lot of accumulated history with those kind of mushrooms. So to me, it only makes sense that would be an entry point for people because it's like the most powerful effect on humans. Right. Potentially. I guess I should get into how I actually did it because it's a pretty interesting story. I, I had yeah. only like 25 bucks in my pocket and I kind of had like bills and, you know, and I... Uh, I definitely owed something, 25 bucks, and I walked in the bookstore, saw this cool mushroom book. It's, it was just the regular Audubon book, which everybody buys, and it's actually pretty outdated, but it's 30-something um, it's, it's years old, the book, you know? And um, there's, there have been books written since, but it's probably most of the our pe- people are mycologist friends, everything else. Most of ours, um, first book we bought, <laughs> um, and, uh, Gary Linkoff, he, he just passed away a few years ago. He was a really awesome guy. Was, I had the pleasure to meet him several times and he was always a pleasure. And he, um, he, he wrote that book and he's a, he, we all, we all have fond memories of him. He always was a great storyteller. You can probably find some really funny stories he told online or hear about funny stories from people in the Myco community. But the Gary Linkoff book was was really probably um, probably one of the most influential identification books written. Um, it's definitely probably the most sold book in mushroom identification, um, even though it's yeah. So anyway, even though it's outdated, so I um, wanted to find psychedelic mushrooms, and I eventually found them. And in, uh, in an ex-girlfriend's yard, it was uh, covered in wood chips, right? And uh, these things are growing like weeds in there. And uh, I, I found what turned out to be psilocybin ovoidiosis studiata, psilocybin ovoidiosis studiata. And um, it was only discovered four years before I found it, so it was not going to be in any of the books that were available at the time. And um, in the books, it looked a lot like 
Celestibe cyanescens, which is a West Coast uh, species that grows in wood chips that have wavy caps. They, they both get wavy caps and grow in wood chips. Um, different seasons, different types of wood, but overall very, very similar. Um, genetically, it's weird though. The Voidiosis cideata is actually related to Celastobe cubensis, which everybody grows in their, in their closet, and uh, Cyanescens, Azurescens, Alenii, Subarganosa from Australia. Um, those are actually all closer related to each other. So that was kind of mind blowing because they look so closely similar and they don't look anything like the ones that people, you know, you see on like Grateful Dead shows or whatever. Right, right. So (laughs) all of this, all of this universe, though, ended up being kind of your entry point to really what got you interested. Obviously, you were starting to you're starting to identify some newer species. And I'm sure it kind of put you through your paces of identifying mushrooms was figuring out you know, which were the psychedelics that you could eat, that kind of thing. Right. So most people get involved and, you know, it takes them a few years and they, you know, a lot of mycologists have done it. So I want to find psychedelic ones and they pick something random up and they say, no, that's not it. And then they start getting into it and they go, oh, wow, I can eat all these awesome ones. And then, oh, I can eat all of these. And then like five years later, they finally find those psychedelic ones and they're like, well, I've already been eating all these other ones. This is kind of cool, you know, and it's kind of already passed. My first mushroom I really picked were, were those, and so it was so it was really mind blowing that I was able to uh, pick it out of the rest pretty immediately without fussing over a bunch of other mushrooms, right? And um, and it was mind blowing. I, w- I went through with it, and uh, spore print looked right, and um, did it with my ex girlfriend, and it was a it was a really beautiful time, and. Um, you know, after that, it really fascinated me. And I, you know, I asked like whatever my higher power was, you know, for, for that. And I found it and I experienced what I wanted to experience. And it was really a special moment in my life, you know? So I, so I wanted to kind of give back. So I said, if I'm, if I can identify that, I can probably identify a lot of other mushrooms and just started doing it. And it took me a few years before I sold them to restaurants or anything like that, but yeah. Um, but I had the confidence to find them until you know nobody I knew was into this at all. It took me years before I, you know, got into the myco community really. So, so yeah, I just posted it on Facebook, and a friend of mine from high school was like, "Hey, I'm a chef. You want to bring it to Philly, which is only about you know an hour away from me, Max, or most you know Center City or whatever." And yeah, he bought some and it was, and that's where it started for there for, for like foraging. And that was really fun. Sounds like you got started just on your own, you know, with an ID book going after what you were interested in that kind of spilled over into a realization like, oh, there are all these other mushrooms out there. If I can identify these, I can start identifying all these other ones in the woods. And then a couple of years down the line, when you get that, um, I don't want to say, but when you get that response of someone who's like, Hey, I want that gourmet mushroom that really like doesn't validate it, but adds a different level of satisfaction, right? Where you're at. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I mean, I could have gone, I could have gone and knocked on the back doors of restaurants or something, but it wasn't really, it actually didn't even 
past my mind. I was just trying to give it away. And my friend was like, hey, come to my restaurant. I didn't even realize he was being a chef, you know. And then he told me to go to a few other restaurants that are back closer to me in my area because he, you know, he's from the same area. I didn't really have to, like, go to the back doors and everything. It was just word of mouth of uh, restaurants, you know. And that was, that's really fun. So you were finding enough gourmet mushrooms where you were actually able to supply restaurants. Now, was this kind of at the same time you were developing your skills at identification? You were interested in all these other mushrooms? Yeah, I was kind of just interested in all, an idea of identifying all of it. And it only took a few years before I realized I can sell to restaurants when, when a friend of mine bought them for me, basically. It really validated that, you know, what I'm doing is actually pretty cool. I didn't really uh, supply, wasn't able to supply a lot or anything. That, that was, it was very difficult to be a forager. Um, I'm still kind of living like that. <laughs> you know, simultaneously, when I got into mushrooms, I, I was studying, like, sculpture and printmaking and stuff in college. And I was pretty successful doing art. And I was like, uh, and I had a sculpting apprenticeship. And I did that for about five years, even through the first part of my mushroom um, learning curve. And um, I kind of left the whole art world to kind of like, to, to, to sell to restaurants and things like that. But it's very difficult. And um, probably going to get back into doing art, honestly, because of I was going to ask if foraging was something that you felt like you could support yourself with because I've known people who get into foraging um, and, and they are at that level where you're able to identify gourmets, you're able to find a lot of them, bring them to restaurants, but it's highly seasonal. You're dependent on people not finding your spots first. You're up from like sun up, you know, until until it gets dark out. It's just, it's just it is it, it all it is is highly seasonal. There's um yeah. there's peak times you can do it. But you're kind of screwed in the wintertime, you know? Absolutely. And then, yeah, you kind of have to make hay while you can. You know, while the mushroom season's going, you have to make your living for the year then. So it's to me, it was like this romantic notion that I had when I got into mushroom foraging. Of like, I'm going to get really good at this. I'm going to start foraging and selling to restaurants. And I had some people actually doing it kind of disabuse me of that and be like, hey, just so you know, it's not it's not a, a it's not a rosy path you know you gotta right. really hit it while it's in mushroom season right and even then and it's really it's, difficult like even last year was very difficult with uh the season it was it, it, not many not much groom it comes with it you know my my one friend he's like uh wild out forager he's he's really good at foraging and uh on instagram and he's um he really studies this stuff, you know, like, yeah, he, he looks at like Google maps and stuff and, and finds new spots and, um, identify trees by the, by the crowns of them. If the, if the pictures are taken at the right time of the year. Wow. Wow. And so, that was wild. That was wild dot forager. Yeah. He's been foraging for longer than me, but I got him into trying to get other, other mushrooms while you're at it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess, so you were always interested then in both those wild forage gourmet medicinal, but also like all the mushrooms you're finding around you. Yeah. So the psychedelics are kind of, were kind of old news to me pretty fast. Um, yeah. Yeah. After, after finding them and, and it got into the gourmet stuff and it, and it, and that the gourmet mushrooms uh, also bled into um, wild mushroom identification where it's like, more scientific we're trying to get accurate information on what mushrooms we're looking at and on described species and stuff like that so 
it's been a very romantic relationship, me and mycology, but I need to start making mycology art, I think. Making cool mushroom art would do really cool things. I was going to say that. If you have an interest in art, I feel like mushroom art, uh, fungi-related art is really something people are interested in right now. I love it. So I think that's you a pretty good change path. my whole Instagram to that or what, but yeah, you, you got an easy path in front of you to get back into art. Um, and just while we're talking about it, what are some of the things when people are out foraging, you know, I know there's basic tree identification is 100% the best thing. Tree identification, yeah. oak, beech, hickory combinations are really nice. And then when you go into the autumn, the later autumn, we like going into conifers, uh, Eastern white pine, hemlock, Spruce and, and eastern white pine are pretty awesome in the autumn time for so, shaggy so. manes, delicious lactarius, porcini, and maybe other bolites too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, as I got more into foraging, I did realize that learning the trees was as much a part of successfully finding what you're looking for. And even once you've already found something, taking note of the trees that's growing around is a really big part of identification. What are some other points of identification? The time, of the, time of the year, maybe like four or five days after a good rain, and we're talking about like a nice soaking. More rain, the better most of the time, but but then there is a there is a level flooding happens, and you don't want you don't want your mushrooms to be a victim of flooding either, because that could make bacterial issues and stuff like that. So for the most part, more rain the better. Five days after a rain, go to the right trees at the right time of the year so there's different trees in the spring as the summer right so different seasons in terms of the mycorrhizal like which tree you're looking for depending on the part yeah, of the year you like gotta know what you know in our area it would be like morels in the spring generals and bolites in the summer other obscure things both in the summer and autumn and then it's like maitake in the autumn as well as corcini if you're lucky matsutake but not really in Pennsylvania. You have to travel for that. Yeah, my talkie is one that uh, my I have family back east, and my talkie is one that I've always wanted to do a trip like September, October, because I know that's when they're out around oak trees. Yeah, we have these big historic mind. oak trees. We have these giant historic oak trees that are hundreds of years old, and they're like they're just ripe for they're popping out gigantic my talkies. David Aurora has one in one of his books. I think it was like forty pounds. Like, oh, Jesus. 40 wow, 40 pounds. pounds of mushroom. Well, and my taki is just delicious. And as far as I know, on the West Coast, that's one that we don't we don't get. That's, no, you don't really get it. That season starts for us like July, kind of August. We get chicken of the woods. And then really it's kind of October. Where, where are you out again? Uh, so I'm in the North Bay area, uh, just north oh, okay. of San Francisco. So, you know, we start getting porcini around October, around the pine trees, October, and then into November, and then kind of December. And then it, after Christmas, it really drops off. You get the porcini and amanita around that time. Chanterelles are kind of weird. They they can almost be year round out here as long as you get enough rain. And they're That's either awesome. yeah, they're either around oaks or sometimes you'll go to some of the coastal forests here and they'll be buried in uh, pine needle duff. If you start lifting over the duff piles, even in like summertime, you'll find chanterelles under there. So yeah, wow. the season out, the seasonality is big. And then for people wow. who do find a mushroom in the wild, just because I get this question a lot, and not necessarily, 
obviously everyone gets those those questions of what mushroom is this with like a picture of a dried up mushroom, but uh, <laughs> that that no one could identify. But when someone finds a mushroom, what are some principles that they need to think about when they're identifying, like like gills being not attached Beautiful to the stem? Question. Or... Beautiful question. Okay, so the underside does it have pores? Does it have gills? Is it growing out of wood? Now, if it's highly decayed wood, like highly decayed, it can kind of resemble dirt. So it's growing out of the soil or is it growing out of wood? And, you know, sometimes there's like an in-between stage. It's kind of good to note if it's highly decayed or not, the wood, because there would be exceptions. Right. Um, growing out of wood, growing out of the ground, having gills. When you get into the gilled mushrooms, then absolutely what you said, where the gills attach to the stem is absolutely important. Um, is it free, which means the gills are not touching the stem at all? Is it adnate, which is uh, running up the, the gills? You know, I think adnext is very similar. So notched, I'll just call it notched if it has like a little divot right around there. That's normally for tricholomas for the most part. And that's a notch between the gills and the stem. Yeah, we're getting detailed on that. Okay. But yeah, it's so it's normally just uh, is it free? Which is it touching it at all? Is it running down the stem? Is it just barely touching it? Spore print is pretty far down on the line if you're once you get good at it. But for beginners, spore prints interesting. You you pop the cap off the stem. And you put it like gills or pores face down, like the maybe a piece of aluminum foil is is easy to find. If you have like clear plastic or glass, uh, that's interesting too. A lot of people tell you to do it on um, white or black paper. The problem is most mushrooms actually have white spore print, and then a good number of them have brown spore prints. It's just nice right. to have them on a neutral thing like aluminum foil or clear plastic or glass. So you can actually put it's on the clear plastic or glass. You can put a different background around it. Yeah. Aluminum foil is just very neutral being reflective and all. You leave it upside yeah, down so, for a few hours. Yep. And you can uh, drop like a drop of water on top or something or maybe put an upside down bowl on top of it so the wind doesn't really disturb it much. Right. You can do things like that. You can leave it overnight maybe. The thing is that as soon as you pick it, you should tr- you should do the spore print um, as fast as you can because that's the gonna you're gonna get the best results then. And if you leave it too long and it has bugs in it, you might open it up and there's like just a pile of bugs. <laughs> so we've all done it, I'm sure. They can be yeah. quick. The bugs can be quick <laughs> in turning a mushroom into just a pile yeah, of now, a pile now of mush. White, now white spores doesn't necessarily mean it's like toxic or or not but it's it gives another feature to to look at yeah it's good to take a picture of a mushroom that has the top and the bottom and a and the side and if you have one mushroom and you have a nice sharp knife or a razor blade or something you can cut it right down the middle and you can prop it so one half shows the bottom and the other half kind of shows the top and the center and all the features with one mushroom you can do that if you cut it and prop it right and the camera you should you leave it at the same kind of uh, depth or level for the camera to zoom equally over both halves and you should be able to get a decent identification from from any mushroom from one picture 
even without the spore print. Bolides, the spore print don't really matter, honestly. They're mostly going to be olive, olive brown, green. So spore prints on bolides don't really matter. You can get the microscopy done and stuff like that too. But um, it's better just to keep a dry mushroom, dry it if you want to save it for science or, or look it under the microscope. Better than having a spore print. You can have both. The spore is going to have some details. But a dried mushroom is going to have spores on it as well. So that's why it's just important just to keep the mushroom and maybe put it in a dry container or something. That's maybe really that. interesting that spores too, the spore print is kind of further down the line. And that's what I wanted to know. I mean, personally for me, and I think a lot of people listening who are getting into foraging, it's like spore print is great, but like I know there are so many other factors that might be a little bit easier in, in terms of differentiation. And so I think what you just laid out, pores versus gills, soil versus out of wood, where the gills actually attach to the stem, are they free, are they attached? Some of those things are even a little easier to start with. And I think we'll really narrow down what mushroom someone's looking at. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I really appreciate that breakdown. And actually you talking about the picture gets me into kind of the next thing I wanted to get into because I know you're really active on Facebook groups and on social media. I'm sure you get floods of people sending you pictures and say, hey, what mushroom is this? So take notes, guys. If you want to send them a mushroom, top, yeah. bottom, sides. But I guess how did you first interface with like the Facebook community? How did you start helping people identify yes. online? So the largest mushroom identification group is the Mushroom Identification Forum. And it was made by Tim Sage maybe 10 years ago or so. I'm not sure exactly. Maybe 11 years ago, maybe nine years ago, something like that. And it's now the largest and maybe like, I'm going to guess 170,000 people. I was identifying on that for, for a few years before I even asked to become a um an admin or whatever, but they, you know, I'd proven myself over the years that I can identify. You normally just um, put the ID in, you, but you don't, you, you, you really ask, like you say, maybe it's this or compare it to that. Don't ever just say it's this mushroom because, right. because then you're being like, you're really sure. So when you're on Facebook, there's kind of Facebook etiquette in these things. You really want to have like all those features I just described, like the top side and bottom of the picture hopefully in one picture, you know, if you, if you're unsure of an ID, just say, maybe it's this or compare to this because we're all unsure of IDs at some point. It's just better to, to ask what it is more than, um, to tell us what it is. People are, people are kind of ruthless. On it. They'll make fun of you for, for thinking it's something it's not because they have experience and you don't. So uh, Facebook's kind of cruel in many ways, but you know, it is what it is. Just ask and ask and just say, I just got into this. I have no idea. <laughs> right. They should, right. They should treat you well, hopefully, but don't get, don't get offended when, when people are jerks to you because it's, it's very common. And I, I've, talked to, community, I've talked to people get, about get, that in the get, mushroom get, community. Yeah. It's a, the problem of the neophyte, which is like someone who's new to it. I'm really interested like myself when I, I've only been into this for about three or four years. So I would get really stoked and post mushrooms or say, maybe it's this. And you know, you do get, I, I don't know what to call it other than kind of put in your place by people more experienced, but it is that dilemma of being new at something is like, I don't necessarily have the experience, you know, don't totally trash me. I'm just really excited about it. Uh, so it's kind of always a dance in like fitting in with being excited about something and not necessarily having the experience and still trying to like 
be part of the community, right? And I think the process sounds like you went through was really earning your stripes by showing up and saying, hey, and be good with your IDs and and maybe putting things in there like, hey, maybe it's this or compare to this. And especially when you're newer out of the gate, don't be so clear cut or definitive, you know, in case it's in case it's not that. So the mushroom identification forum, I know there are a lot of regional Facebook group. Yeah, so so that was years ago, and there have been many identification forums that are similar. You know, have different names: mushroom identification, fungi identification, and there's regional ones. And uh, the regional ones can be can be better for some for some things, but they can actually be worse for others because there's some people that are pretty rural and don't know what they're really saying, and some people that just know what they're talking about kind of can cover larger areas of the world. Um, some right. mushrooms are more all over the world than others. I'm, I'm always impressed by the amount of people like you or people combing those forums where I feel like I'll get a response right away. And that's why I refer people when they send me a picture. I'm like, hey, if you have Instagram, you probably also have a Facebook. I would post this on a Facebook group because you're way more likely to get help than just direct messaging someone on Instagram. It's called the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> Dunning-Kruger effect, what's that? It's kind of like when you when you first get into something and you think you're get you're really good, but you're actually not. And hey, let me see, let me type it in. Maybe uh, that sounds like exactly what okay, I was so talking about. It refers to the seemingly pervasive tendency of poor for performers to overestimate their abilities relative to the other people, and to a lesser extent for higher performers to underestimate their abilities. Yeah. Once you become, once you get into it, you get humbled by people that are like way better than you right and at the same time the better you get you realize how much you how little you know in the bigger scheme of it all right but when you're fresh starting out like i was agree i was like oh i know what that mushroom is and you start trying to identify yeah until you get humbled until i met it's you know so that funny. was that was for me meeting you know more experienced mycologists who kind of had to guide me through the principles of identification now i'm at the point where i tell people hey I'm not even going to try to help with an identification if it's a guild mushroom, just because I got, I finally realized how much I didn't know that I was like, I'm very hesitant now to even try to identify something for someone. Right. Um, once you, once you get the confidence that you think, you know, we were talking about, then all of a sudden you see something that's like deadly toxic and it like looks just like it. And you're just like, geez, I, I'm just made a mistake or something. <laughs> right. You know, but right. Not really. It's not that extreme, honestly, but it, it can be, like, maybe, but it, it, for some people. So it's just, it's just a funny, just the funny effect of the human, human mind. I, I, I ran across that recently, and it's funny that you brought it up. Well, and, and I've seen it with a lot of people, and I've seen it in myself. So it's nice, to have, it's nice to have a term for it and understanding that this is a very real thing. It's a psychology. Now, the Facebook group, the online communities, I feel like those are great resources, great ways for people to get connected. I know a lot of people also get a lot out of, you know, in-person communities or meeting in person with mycologists. And I do want to talk a little bit about your growth through mushroom foraging and identification to the point where you started taking trips outside of your local area and you started connecting with even more knowledgeable people. So there's no easy way to do it because I'm sure there's like tons of stories in every trip and every connection. But what were some uh, trips that really were kind of seminal moments for you and seeing like a whole new world of fungi or meeting someone who's super inspirational? Yeah, that's a good one. So I guess there's I guess there's two stories at once. Uh, I was really interested in wanting to find morels. It took me four years or five years before I found a single morel. 
they're that elusive in Pennsylvania that it took me five years before I found one. And I was kind of bummed about that. The same time, about eight years ago, maybe nine years, about eight years ago, uh, my, my dad passed away and I'd, I'd gotten a little bit of money from him or whatever. And he had said, you know, it's better to um, travel when you're young. So at the same time, when I was looking for morale tours, I, I, I typed in morale tours like back then and Larry Evans popped up, right? Larry Evans is a really cool Micah guy. I know the, I'm, I'm sure you know of him. And he, he was a, on the front cover of that movie, uh, Know Your Mushrooms, which is a funny movie about the Telluride Mushroom Festival. And he, he had morale tours, but he had also set up tours into Ecuador and Bolivia and other places like that. Like, oh my God. And he had this tour that was like, come eat chocolate in the rainforest, you know, hang out with monkeys in Ecuador. And I was like, yeah, like chocolate and monkeys and mushrooms. That sounds and good, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. So I brought a friend of mine and we both had a blast. Larry's a great guy. Stayed in the jungles of Ecuador. I was really fascinated by cordyceps at the time. And hopefully um, you guys will all get fascinated by it when you see the, see the video with Dave and Attenborough talking about the ant that's been infected by this fungus and crawls up a stem and... And the fungus busts out his head and sprays spores onto other ants. And when the ants find out, find another ant that's like super acting funny, they'll like take it off like way far away. And both the one that takes the one away or both die out far away from the colony. Yeah, so I was really fascinated with cordyceps because there's a lot of them and they specialize in single species or maybe a few species um, of mostly insects, also arachnids. Yeah, so going to Ecuador and checking out the the cordyceps in, in Ecuador is really amazing. Going to Amazon, um, having an awesome tour guide. So was the tour, I'm guessing the tour to Ecuador then was more centered around different species of that, as you so eloquently put it, that zombie, that predatory fungus, cordyceps. Um, did you guys find exotic varieties of cordyceps? I think a lot of people listening yeah. may know about cordyceps militaris or some yeah. of the cordyceps used in medicinal products that you can buy now. But uh, from, right. looking up, from a cursory inspection of cordyceps, you can see incredible variety of species. Yeah, all right. So, so, alien. so you're, you're bringing up a lot of really cool stuff. So, so historically, the Chinese have been getting uh, cordyceps from a caterpillar in Nepal. And then the name is Yartumba, and that's Cordyceps sinensis. Is that right? Yeah. It's probably Orpheo Cordyceps, or probably they, they change names on these things all the time on Mushroom World. But um, it was Cordyceps sinensis, and uh, we have Cordyceps militaris, and a buddy of mine, William Padilla Brown, he grows the militaris and kind of made it a thing in the United States, you know, which is really awesome, which our local orange orange clubbed ones are really interesting but the but the chinese right they've been the chinese cordyceps are actually worth more than probably the most expensive natural commodity maybe you know it's more expensive than white truffles and people think white truffles are the most expensive fungi out there this this yartagumba stuff is uh what maybe twenty thousand dollars a pound who knows and it's always going up people are out right. people are out in the fields on their hands and knees Picking the, this stuff, and it, it causes it causes turmoil in their local communities, and it's you know because the Chinese have their influence, and 
Oh, it's also a driving force. I think it's 10% of the gross domestic product of Nepal. And that was 10 years ago. Who knows what it was now, you know? As demand has um, skyrocketed, that's probably gone up. Yeah. So it's probably doing a big percentage of the gross domestic product in Nepal, which is really fascinating in itself. But yeah, yeah, yeah so, so we went there. We saw them on stick bugs. We saw them on moths. I mean, right now, there's a Canthomyces, which is very similar, that grows on moths, which have like all these white projections growing out of the moth's body. You're saying you can find those in North America or in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania right, now. right now. Yeah, yeah. We, we just went out, I just went out with the Philadelphia Club, which is like a newly formed club, which is really cool. My friend Bethany Teagan, she, she started it uh, last year, and she brought the group out, and uh, we just found it a few days ago. Wow. Wow. So you took this trip to Ecuador with Larry Evans, who uh, I am familiar with at least tangentially. I mean, I've met him uh, in Mendocino. I met him at uh, Telluride Mushroom Festival. I've always kind of joked around. He's like the Indiana Jones of mushrooms. He, when I saw his yeah, presentation, on, when I saw his presentation on following around burns to find morels, which sounds like kind of how you came on him was those morel trips. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's someone that you think, wow, I really want to go foraging with this guy. Yeah, He's got so a cool you know personality. What, so you know what? Actually, like um, Larry's like been a really awesome inspiration in my life. He uh, Soon after that trip, the next year, I went across the country, and he lives in Montana. So I, I went across the country a few years ago, a uh, road trip, and I stayed with him for about maybe a month, really. Maybe even, oh, like, wow. maybe even like six weeks. I don't even know. But I stayed with him, and he took me out. We picked burn morels, which are morels that only grow in the wildfire burns like a year after the burn out in like the Pacific Northwest, out in Montana and Idaho and things like that. You think of Idaho as potatoes and it's like a lot of mountains in Idaho and it's absolutely beautiful. Depends on what part you're in, I guess. Idaho and Montana and going to California and I did a great, had a really great time meeting a lot of people across the country and meeting a lot of different mycologists and also Alan Rockefeller met him on the same trip out in California. And I, I eventually went to Mexico with him around the peninsula, like uh, kind of near Cancun, I guess you would say. Like the Yucatan. Uh, yeah, the Yucatan. Yeah, yep, yep. And uh, it was really amazing with Alan. He's he's a he's a great influence in my life, much my dedication. Well, I mean, so it sounds like your identification of mushrooms, you taught yourself, you grew to a point where you were becoming kind of a... a a force unto yourself in the world of mycology, helping people identify on Facebook, participating in kind of your local community. And I just think it's cool how uh, doors got unlocked because of those skills to be able to meet new people and go on these adventures where you're able to find even more exotic fungi. And I, I always love hearing about that journey. And yours is definitely a really interesting one. And, you know, I took a trip to I kind of had my first reaching out of my local area just this past September when I went to uh, Oaxaca, Mexico, and I was able to go mushroom hunting, uh, you know, in an exotic place, not with, you know, a highly renowned mycologist like you did, but but seeing other mushrooms and just being in that different environment. And I feel like I learned a ton in just working with the people there and 
kind of broadens your perspective on the fungi universe. But what was interesting to me, it was a lot of the mushrooms. I assumed that obviously we weren't looking at cordyceps and some of the more exotic kind of alien looking fungi, but I assumed I was going to be walking into a world of just that, of completely exotic mushrooms that I knew nothing about. Um, but instead I was presented with a lot of the similar species that we have here in North America. I guess it was only Mexico. It's not, you know, across the world necessarily, but as much as you've talked about cordyceps, some of these other things in your journeys, did you end up seeing a lot of mushrooms that you were kind of already familiar with, especially with your, that is such an awesome question, honestly. So when I went to Mexico, uh, that part of Mexico, you would think is just got crazy different woods. Like it's just like rainforest, like, like it is in Ecuador, but it's not, um, here, let me, here, let me backtrack. So I, after a year after, I went to Ecuador. I also went to Bolivia with Larry and Daniel Winkler as well. And um, so Bolivia was really interesting. And then, like I said, a few years after that, I went to Mexico with Alan. What's so interesting about that part of Mexico is they have 64, I believe, oak species. And at the same token, we only have 32 or so in Pennsylvania, or at least that's what, what I recognize at the time. So they have twice as many oak species in Mexico, as in Pennsylvania, and as a lot of mushroom hunters know, oak is like one of the best trees overall for mushrooms. I mean, it's a superstar in terms of mycorrhizal and all the different mushrooms right. that it pairs with, yeah. There's a whole book on it. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's a whole book about the all the fungi that, that have relationships with oaks, and it's a really good book. And you don't anyway. think of Mexico for, I mean, that's it. really interesting because you don't think of like, oh, the Mexican oak, you know, I, I don't. Right, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's so amazing. And so I left Pennsylvania finding all these really interesting mushrooms and then they kind of were dying off. It was kind of getting in that kind of weird time where it's in between seasons, uh, in between summer and autumn. And uh, I went to Mexico. It's, it was like going back in time. So, three weeks or something like that. But it was, it was because of the elevation going up the mountain, as well as they, we went into the cloud forest where the clouds meet the mountain. So it's kind of like always mushroom heaven there, right? Right, and, right. Um, and it was really, the most fascinating thing was that all the similar mushrooms we saw there, the things that were different were interesting. One of the Porcini species was really tiny and like cute. And looked, yeah, it looked fantastic, but just just tiny, like a miniature. And I, I thought that was really interesting. But for the most part, most of the species we saw, we see here, but we definitely saw some really interesting, rare stuff that could exist up here, but doesn't often. Super rare stuff. And they're probably, a lot of them probably are genetically different, but a lot of them might be genetically identical to the stuff in North America. We, we, we might know after a lot of Alan's work. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't know, Alan Rockefeller has done a lot of work on gen, uh, genetic identification using PCR and other methods. Not something I'm an expert on, but I was lucky enough to be part of the uh, Bay Area Applied Mycology Lab out here oh, in Oakland. Awesome. And yeah, I was a member for a little while, had a chance to meet Alan. Um, so, Alan oh, did a lot with getting that DNA equipment in, in that lab. Absolutely, sure. in Counterculture Lab. I went to Counterculture Labs with him once. I wish I had met up with you. 
<laughs> oh, small, small world. Well, you know, that was when I was living in that part of kind of the Bay Area. I'm a little further north now and I don't get down there as much. Uh, but yeah. he was definitely a huge inspiration in just realizing, um, you know, how much variability there is in the world, how much that goes into really identifying these different kinds of mushrooms that might look identical. He had this huge dried mushroom collection that he had collected from his travels. And for someone who was new to mycology, it was kind of mind-blowing. So that's that's mm -hmm. super interesting. You were able to go with him and go to Mexico. And my The other thing I was going to say that I remember from that Oaxaca trip is like, like you're saying, we did find a lot of mushrooms that are similar to things that we were finding here in North America, but it was so interesting to hear the different cultural perspective on them. So like yeah. scaly vase chanterelle that we find here considered, you know, pretty much inedible or, or edible, but like forgettable, kind of bitter. They considered it a good edible there with proper preparation. In Mexico, you're saying, yeah. Yeah, in Mexico. Um, and then the same with uh, the false chanterelle, which is also a nut. Not really, oh, okay. Chanel, just like yeah. The scaly chanterelle, um, the Hygrophropsis orantiaca, that species group. There's actually a lot of species in there, but uh, we just use really one name. Um, that that species they eat in Mexico, um, but I'm pretty sure it might catch you like diarrhea or something. I've always heard like the fall chanterelle makes you sick. So that's and, and another one that really stuck out to me for that trip was they uh, pointed out. Uh, it wasn't an artist conch, but it was it was like a, a hard polypore. I couldn't really see it because it was so far up a tree. And he, the guy, our guide down there, Pichito, pointed it out and said, like, yeah, if you mix that, and I had to have the translator repeat it because I couldn't believe I had heard this. He's like, if you mix that hard polypore with snake's blood, it's really good for in started talking about it as like a medicine or a tonic. Um, so I guess... At, I love sharing the stories, but I guess my like underlying takeaway is even if there's even in areas where there might be similar mushrooms, like some of the cultural differences that you get into wow. in psychology are mind blowing. Yeah, you hear stories from David Aurora um, going to Japan, and um, in Japan they don't eat the porcini; they they prefer the muscaria that's like boiled in a certain way and treated in a certain way. It's really funny. Uh, they, they they didn't want the porcini, which is which you can eat raw. Right, porcini is one of the very few mushrooms you can eat raw. Right, it, that's it. That that's a trip. So instead, they went after the the Amanita muscaria, which they grow together. So I guess and the Amanita muscaria is the red with white dots Mario mushroom. If anyone doesn't know, and it, it's kind of inebriating. It's not really trippy if you were to take it. I've never experienced it personally, but. Um, from what I hear, it's like so lame that it's legal, you know, it's still legal. Exactly. I've heard the same thing. It's more of like a delirium, doesn't really have the same kind of psychoactive effects. Now with all your experience to rule, you've been to South America, you've been out to the Western part of North America hunting exotic fungi, maybe even not so exotic fungi. Um, so you've gotten a ton of experience in doing this. And I'm sure on Instagram and on social media, people are already asking you, hey, can you take me out foraging? So do you have uh, a venue or a group there locally where you lead forages and take people out into the woods? Yeah, so I started um, my local group, the Chester County Mycological Association. And I normally take people out on morale tours. I haven't taken people out more than the morale tours um, too much, honestly through my group, but I'd like to do that more often, uh, take them to the local parks and things like that. I encourage everyone to join their local mushroom club. I often, if I travel, I try to, to, to 
make an appearance at a local mycology thing and maybe maybe present if if uh, they're welcoming to that or whatever. And um, so sometimes I travel around and and do presentations all over the place because there are mycology clubs all over the place. You can just join your local one. That's where it's at. It's about learning and sharing all this information. Absolutely. And I think there are people like yourself that are like talented enough and driven enough to teach yourself about foraging, uh, you know, get out in the woods and learn from a book. Obviously, online communities are amazing and just the scale of people that you're able to reach out to. Pretty intimidating when you just get a book and go out into the woods. You know, it took me about four or five years before I found somebody. Uh, well, until I met Larry, actually, all the way in Ecuador. To that was actually another my another uh, person I was even interested in mushrooms. I wish I had the resources we have today. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I think like even with all those resources, that personal connection where maybe it's not someone as as much notoriety and knowledge as a uh, Larry Evans, but you know, with the local groups that are starting to pop up and there's been a lot more, you know, the mycological society of Marin County where I live just started about three years ago and going in person, to those groups, meeting people that have foraged in this area. It's always interesting when the club starts at first, it has trouble getting members, but then eventually all the people that have already been mushroom hunting in that area for a long time. Uh, and in this area, we happen to have a big Eastern European community, uh, Italian communities that have lineages of hunting mushrooms. And so they start joining the clubs and then you really start learning for people that have been doing this for so long in your area. And I always say it cuts out like it, or it puts you on a fast track to really learning how to forage, identify the the relevant mushrooms in your area. Uh, So that's why I wondered if you had a physical community component and sounds like you you, you wanted Uh, to start your own. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice to see people from all over the world come to these events, uh, to these mushroom events. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that is an exciting future plan. I always ask everyone, like, what are you doing next? And I kind of had in my notes here for you, like, are you going to write a book about foraging? Are you going to start a mushroom farm? Are you going to start your own line of like two gnomes, mushroom supplements, your picture on the front, giving a thumbs up (laughs) or something? You know, I was wondering because for people who may not know, um, you know, who who you are, you've been doing this for so long. And I know there's so many people now getting into it because mushrooms are like the new big thing. I'm, I'm like a symptom of this new wave of interest in mushrooms. And I always think it's interesting. Um, or, or I think I should say, I think it's right for people that have been doing this for a long time to become central figures and kind of guiding people as they get into this topic. And that's why I just wanted to know like what you're doing next. And with that, um, where's the best people to find you and find out more about what you're doing and, and follow along. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on Facebook, uh, tug to loose, but kind of use Instagram a little bit more. Um, two gnomes, T W O underscore G N O M E S. So in the future, I'm going to be doing, um, this thing with Larry Evans, uh, in Jamaica. He's, he's the, He's started the Institute of Psychosomatic Mycophagy, and they are interested in doing a um, a meeting in Jamaica in April. It's about PTSD and how mushrooms can help people survive traumatic experiences, and uh, we're going to be doing our own, um, I guess, private thing in Jamaica where it's legal where we're going to be sitting in with people um, 
to help them therapeutically. And I know that you are, you've done interviews with people that have done similar things with John Hopkins University and hopefully we'll get in contact with them and ask for advice since they have uh, experience in that area. Yeah. And well, I, I really... think there, there are some interesting, um, blueprints, you know, when, when talking with them, I know a lot of the clinical trials that are popping up more and more now are usually focused on like one issue or one set of symptoms. And sometimes the process they use can really vary depending on what they're trying to examine. Uh, but definitely, you know, after the show, I do want to try to connect you with anyone I know who might be able to, to help with that kind of thing. Cause it is, uh, there's a lot of responsibility that goes with that that I'm sure you're feeling a little bit. There's a lot of responsibility that goes with that. Um, but I think it's something that is going to be more and more prevalent. Obviously, decriminalized movements like out here in Oakland, Oakland, California, decriminalized psychoactive mushrooms, among a right. number of other entheogenic plants. Santa Cruz just did the same out here. Um, Denver, obviously. So I think we're going to see more and more places destigmatizing and decriminalizing these substances. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's going to mean that there is a need for more and more people, you know, however daunting it might seem at first, there's going to be a need for more and more people to get familiar with these substances, holding space for these substances and being able to translate to people how they should use them most efficaciously and most responsibly. So I think what you're doing with that project and what Larry's doing uh, is, is, you know, important beyond just that event. It's important to get people prepared for the wave of new people, including people who don't know anything about mushrooms who are going to get curious and get into this. We're going to need right. a wave of like modern day. And I hate the word shaman because everyone uses it, but, right, but, but like the, modern day micro shamans. Yeah, I mean, we really, we really need to open the way for um, legal use of what what the ancient people would call earth medicines, really. And yeah. um, there's there's other earth medicines other than just mushrooms. You know, there are a lot of components aside from just the physical substance itself that lends to it being a productive experience. And I think. You know, right. whether whether it's psilocybin containing mushrooms or whether it's another substance, it just being cognizant of that fact that, you know, it's the person that's there guiding you, the setting that you're in, the mindset that you're in are all a huge part of that. And you don't want to kind of like take the substance out of that context because then you're right. not really in the realm of being as like therapeutic or as healing or or, or as productive. And I know I, I like to preface this with like, we're not trying to make you know, to rule into like the psychedelic <laughs> poster child. But I think it is a huge topic and I would feel more comfortable with someone like yourself who is knowledgeable about these substances to be kind of at the forefront uh, of guiding experiences or implementing really what is a cultural shift. I would think it's people like you that should be at the forefront of that Thank you. Um, because you, you are knowledgeable and you have I'm forgetting the name of the effect already, but you have the level of knowledge where you know you don't know enough. So you're you're on the whole going to err on the side of safety more than anything else, which I think is really right. important. Right. Um, Thank you. So Instagram is two gnomes. People can find you on Facebook as well. Um, is there any other promo? Any the other Chester County Mycological Association? Yep. Chester County Mycological Association is on Facebook. Um, well, we're going to link all this up in the show notes so people can go find you, especially guys, if you're in Tug's local area, 
get out there, become a part of his association. You've got, you know, a, a huge resource right there in your backyard to help you go forage and identify mushrooms. Well, to rule, thank you so much for the time walking through the questions. Um, and I just, it, for me, you're someone who's inspired me from the very start of my journey. So yeah, it was an honor so to speak you with had, you. Yeah. You, you, you asked the right questions. It was, it was an honor being part of your podcast. It's uh, I really appreciate it all. Thank you so much. Terrific. All right. Well, hey, we'll talk again soon. Cool. See ya.